In Camden Town, I'll meet you at the underground. In Camden Town, we'll walk there as the sun goes down. In Camden Town. Welcome to Camdeners, the official podcast for the Camden Clean Air Initiative with me, Jeffrey Young. In this podcast, we get to know and discover the lives of Camdeners, those special individuals shaping the unique and vibrant culture of the borough of Camden. Today, we're here in the studio with renowned gallerist, Rebecca Hossack. Welcome, Rebecca. Oh, it's really nice to be here. I actually realized I've been a Camdener even longer because when I was a little girl, I lived in Bloomsbury. My father was an Australian doctor and came to study over here. And we lived in Mecklenburg Square in Bloomsbury. So I'm really Camden. It was my destiny. Wow. Tell us about how you became a gallerist. Were you an artist to begin with or just someone that loved art? No, I was absolutely not an artist, but um, I have enormous respect um, and regard for people that are. I think it's an extraordinary um, thing to do because it's very lonely. You work alone in your studio and you could be thinking, gosh, am I crazy? What am I doing? And yet you give so much joy um, to the world. Like many people, when I sort of said I wanted to work in the art world, my parents in Melbourne said, absolutely not. Do something solid. Get something solid under your belt. So I studied law at Melbourne University. I spent five years studying law, which I absolutely hated every single day. And All I used to do in my spare time was go to galleries and museums and look at pictures. And eventually, um, after I'd got my degree, again, under parental pressure, I sound like a very docile daughter, but I wasn't. I was, um, my parents said, you should go to England. And I worked um, for a year as a a waitress in a restaurant um, to save up the money to go to England and do a final um, year of law to become a barrister. But my secret plan, unbeknownst to my parents, was to actually see all the paintings that I'd only ever seen in books. Because in Australia, as you know, of course, we don't have the great masterpieces which are available in Europe. And so you could look at a little um, uh, a little Van Eyck out on a screen if you studied art history, which I also did. Um, and it would be the same size as a vast Tiepolo. So you had no sense of scale. You had no sense of texture. And so my secret plan was to study law, but spend every single minute looking at art galleries and looking at paintings, which I just love. And you know how life can be changed by somebody that you sit next to on a bus or a train or anything? So my first day at this um, bar school, at, 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 um, again, at um, a university here in Bloomsbury, um, was I sat next to this girl and she said, because um, she seemed to know all about this. And I said, yeah, I've spent five years and I've got a law degree. And she said, well, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I don't know. I really want to um, be in the art world. And she said, well, why don't you study art here? And my flatmate's just come and she's studying art. And why don't you join the course that she's studying? So I jumped on a bus and I went to Christie's South Kensington and I walked in and said, hello, can I have a study art here for a year? And they went, no, um, you can't. You have to apply a year in advance and there's no places. 
And I was so sad. I went home that night and I was living in a little hostel near King's Cross and I was so sad. And um, I thought, well, that's it. The die is cast. I've got to be a lawyer. Ooh, the rest of my life's going to be so horrible because um, I hadn't paid the fees yet to my law course as an overseas student. And so then um, the next morning, a telegram came from um, the secretary at the, the receptionist at the um, place at Christie's where I'd gone to ask for a the course. And she said, look, Rebecca, as you left, um, somebody sent a telegram from Malaysia saying they can't attend the course. So as you're here, do you want to come in for an interview? And that's how my life changed. So I never told my parents that I was studying art history instead of law. And that's when my I moved into the, the art world. But a 20 odd years later, I was back lecturing to students at Christie's. And I said, you know, this is where my life really began in this room. And it, at the end of a lecture, a young girl from Malaysia came up to me and said, you know what, I'm the reason you're not a lawyer. She said my mother was due to come on that course and she couldn't because she got pregnant with me. Isn't that amazing? And it just shows how the world, you can be affected by who you sit next to suggesting something or something happening at the other side of the world. Well, it's amazing. Well, we are here in Serendipity House. Oh, um, my goodness, Jeffrey, And our studios perfect. are called Serendipity Studios. Oh. Um, and uh, the serendipitous thing that happened over 22 years ago at your gallery, um, which I sort of mentioned to you, is I met a guy called Murray Dalmida, which is the guy that got me into coffee, that changed my whole life. Um, quite incredible. Um, the... Yes, yeah, serendipity is my favourite word, and um, I can see that it's been it's a big part really of your journey. It's really my favourite word. I've never planned anything in my life. Things just keep happening. And I always think as long as you're doing the right thing, they'll keep happening in a good way. So so I studied in this area, but then also um, when I finished my course, again, reality starts. You know, here you are in a foreign country. I didn't have any money. I didn't really know anybody. And I only had a bicycle. And so I used to ride around um, Bloomsbury and I got a job in a secondhand bookshop cataloging um, in Hoban Viaduct, cataloging their um, art books. And I didn't have any money. So I used to, when Mr. Thorpe went home, I used to sleep in the basement of the bookshop. Wow. And he didn't know that, that I was living in his basement. <laughs> and I used to go every morning to um, London University to have a swim and a shower. And then I would but I actually had a really nice time because in the weekend, the the whole um, place was shut up and I could read all the art books. So I educated myself and it was really, really fun. And then on my bicycle, which was the only thing I owned, I used to ride around and I saw um, Charlotte Street and it was the place that most reminded me of home of Australia. Um there was sort of, it just had a, because of the Greek community and the Italian community there, because at that time it was pretty much all Greek restaurants. And so there was that lovely kind of um, little pots of basil outside, um, people sitting outside talking and chatting to each other. And so it seemed really, really nice. And then serendipity, one day I was riding my bicycle down Win Windmill Street, which runs between Charlotte Street and um, Tottenham Court Road. And um, I saw a sign saying shop for lease, no premium required, because in those days in the late 80s, if you wanted to get a lease, you also had to pay key money, like which could be like 20,000. And um, it was a beautiful sunny day. And I 
Well, if it had been raining, I wouldn't have opened an art gallery. But it just so happened that there was a man outside hosing the pavement. And I jumped off my bike and I said, oh, do you know anything about this sign? And he goes, yes, it's my property. And I said, oh, great. Can I have it? I want to start an art gallery. It was totally like that, Jeffrey. I didn't have a penny to my name. I owned a bicycle. I was living in a basement of a bicycle shop, of of a bookshop um, that no one knew about. Um, and they knew about the bookshop. They didn't know I was living there. <laughs> and um, anyway, so he sort of, I think he saw a sucker and he thought, brilliant, do you want to sign a Lisa pretty well there? And then he said, come in and sign this piece of paper. And before I knew it, I had a 20-year lease on a property in Charlotte Street with n- no money, nothing. I knew nothing about running a business. I didn't even know anybody. And so um, it is just so interesting how just a beautiful day, sunshining can make you. And boy, was that a good way to learn. Because um, I went to Barclays Bank, and I am always forever grateful to them. And the nice man there called Paul Castle said, I will lend you £10,000 to start your art gallery. And it was really, really lovely of him. And I said, look, if it doesn't work, I'll work as a waitress and I'll pay you back. And don't worry. And he he trusted me. And so um, I got all my friends to come and, well, not my friends, but just I had one friend to help me paint and decorate. And um, we fixed it up. We didn't have, you know, we had the 10,000. I thought, well, let's just have a really big opening party and do beautiful invitations and posters and really, you know, let's make it wonderful. And so before I'd known it, we'd spent, all the um, 10,000 on the opening, and then reality hit because it was um, Black Wednesday, I think 1987, October, or um, and interest rates went up to 18%, and it was just a really good way to learn how to run a business. Um, really, really hard. For the first six years, I never slept the night through without waking and worrying about money. It was just like, you know... And even if I went to the cinema and they mentioned money in the movie, I'd suddenly go like, oh, you know, it was really, but it was, um, it was very, very tough times, but it was really, it was really a good way to learn. Great. And tell us about the Rebecca Hossack Gallery now. It's grown and it's grown. And um, I now have, um, th- well, two galleries. I have one, um, it was in New York for the last 10 years, but I've just moved it to Miami, which is um the fastest growing city in America and it's really beautiful and it's a kind of um, gallery in a garden. I've got um, coconut trees, banana trees, everything growing there. But that's that's um, Miami. It's not Camden. And here um, in Fitzrovia, um, I just love my gallery. It's more than a gallery. Um, I love my artists and I work really, really hard for them and they're extraordinary people. But I also love the community that the gallery is situated in. And so Everything we do um, is kind of community involved. And so, for example, um, last week, we organized a thing called the Fitzrovia Arts Festival. And everyone said, you can't do it and, you know, COVID and everything. And so we were on and off because Fitzrovia is home to some amazing um, talented artists and musicians. And one of them, Daniel Bates, is the world's best oboe player. He hates it when I say that, but he is, and he's just fantastic. And he lives in Hanson Street. And so he came to see see me um, several years ago and said, look, why don't we start this festival? And we did. And this year, um, it was its fifth year, was, despite COVID, amazing. All little businesses, if I was just out watering, because I put 
um, flowers and trees in the streets. So people walk past all the time and say hi and sort of guerrilla gardening. And then I'd say, oh, hi, can you give some money for the Fitzrovia Arts Festival? And people would give 500, 1,000 pounds. So we, it all went to paying the artists, um, the musicians, wonderful musicians and um, artists. And we had a kids' day where children came to the gallery um, and painted. And we had um, a national health workers um concert um, in the Fitzrovia Community Centre, and we did wonderful jazz concerts in Warren Muse. Everything was free. Everything was free for the local community. We had a talk on my husband, um, Matthew Sturgis, is a biographer, and he's just written the definitive biography of Oscar Wilde. And so he um, took everyone on a Oscar Wilde in Fitzrovia walk, and 150 people turned up on a Friday morning. You know, it was really amazing. And the final concert in the... Um, Fitzrovia Chapel. I, I walked in. And I just couldn't believe it. There was uh, people from you know um, all the council estates nearby, from Fitzroy Square. Um, children two years old to ninety-five year old people in wheelchairs. It was such a wonderful community event. Tell me about some of the indigenous artists that you've been working with. Well, it's, I think Fitzrovia can now, or Camden, can now claim to be the part of London that has had more indigenous artists than any other part of the city. Um, because over the 33 years that I've had my gallery, um, we have had countless numbers of artists come from all over the world. And so it, we had a group of Bushman artists from the Kalahari Desert. I went to stay with them. Oh, gosh, that's a hard place. And, they, and then they came back to stay with me, 12 of them, in Windmill Street. And the first thing I said was, what do you think of this city? Because, you know, imagine coming from the Kalahari Desert to London. And you know what they said? There's no thorns on the pavement. And they were that was their major observation. And so they we used to sit outside the gallery and people like the writer Bruce Chapwin used to come and sit and hold court. And they would always paint the facade of the gallery before they left as that they'd paint a picture. And so over the years, if you scraped away, or they would paint the pavement, if you scraped away the paint in Windmill Street, there are paintings that were they on canvas would now be worth hundreds of thousands of pounds, um, painted by famous artists like Jimmy Pike, um, wonderful, wonderful Aboriginal artist from the Great Sandy Desert who painted a huge mural in Windmill Street, um, Clifford Possum, Jappal Jari, wonderful Aboriginal artist, or um, we had a lot of artists from um, Papua New Guinea come and stay. And so it's quite funny to every time I walk down Windmill Street, I think under these pavements there's just so much... Um, Art. I mean, really amazing art. And it's been wonderful um, having these artists come to stay because watching London through their eyes. And again, they're so centred and have such a sense of their self that they say, you know, you'd think they'd be really excited. But I took one of them up the London Eye, a young Aboriginal man, and he goes, and I go, what do you think? Um, are you excited about this? And he went, he just looked, he was very, very quiet. And from the top of the London Eye, he looked down and he just went, what a mess they've made. And I thought that was so interesting because, you know, he was a really, he's called Lloyd Quiller, a really cool, very, you know, competent, brilliant young professional Aboriginal artists and he just was like sad and I think what they really enjoyed which is what I think all people really enjoy I've learned so much from working with Indigenous people is actually just sitting together talking being um, hopefully under the shade of a tree or looking at a flower.
if you could wave a magic wand, um, you know, for Camden to make some kind of change in the borough of Camden, what would that be? What would you do? I was thinking about that, Jeffrey, this morning, and I think I I know it's really difficult, but cars. I think I would make it pedestrianised. Um, Amsterdam's such a great city, isn't it? For they, how come they've got the same climate as us? It rains a lot, but they just manage, and and they have small narrow streets like us. So central, you know, um, Fitzrovia and Soho and Marylebone, little old 18th century or even Elizabethan streets. Um, the Tudor pathway that Windmill Street, my old gallery was on, was actually a Tudor pathway to the windmill, um, wow. yeah, to get water through the Senate House um, to Russell Square. And so these streets are, are really little and they're just not fit for the vast, vast um, trucks that come through. And Everyone can, you know, it took me five minutes to get here on my bike from you. And, you know, I've got an old-fashioned bike. It's not a fancy bike or anything. Um, or I could have walked in in 20 minutes, and that would have been nice, and I could have thought. And I just think it's the car thing, if we could just pedestrianise. And I do see other boroughs uh, starting to do that. But just one, um, getting back to one more activist thing that's interesting before we do Magic One, is um, that... Uh, for years and years, when I um, I also had a gallery in Charlotte Street, um, I would walk between my two galleries and I would see the Middlesex Hospital. And it was a beautiful red brick building. And then the Candy Brothers bought it and they pulled it down. And it was really sad. Um, we fought and fought for it not to be pulled down. Beautiful Edwardian building. And again, more luxury flats for the super rich. And okay, that's fine. They bought it and they pulled it down. But then they did nothing. Year after year after year, it sat there with these hoardings blocking off the pavement. And this poor little chapel, which we used for the Fitzrovia Festival recently, um, sitting forlornly in the middle because that was the only thing they weren't allowed to destroy. And so... After about five years, I thought when they're probably waiting for prices to go up and whatever, I suddenly thought, you know, this is in the heart of our community. This is an acre site. Um, why should we not be, why should we have to look at this rubble and everything? Why can't we use it pending their actual start of construction, which I knew at that point wasn't going to be for another two years? Why can't we use it as an allotment? And so I raised it um, in Camden Council, I was actually a councillor at that time, I raised it in question time, and then it got picked up by the Camden Journal. And so lots of people, local Camden people, contacted me and said, we'd love to be involved. And then I contacted um, the North London Waste Authority, because have you ever been out there? It's incredible. All our waste gets turned into fertilizer and soil. It's really like it's a sort of Willy Wonka factory. It's just incredible. Um, anyway, they said, we will supply you with all the soil. And then another company um, said they would give us grow bags, one meter grow bags, which would be so easy because we could put them all over the site, these one meter square grow bags um, filled with free soil, free grow bags, and a seed company contacted me and said, we will give you free seeds. It was amazing. But we used to have meetings in the gallery, um, 50 to 100 people, local residents will come. Everyone was going to have one, two, three, four grow bags. And interestingly enough, the uh, people representing um, the uh, Candy and Candy was sort of forced into it again by pressure from the press. 
And then it was all set to go. Um, and we were getting more and more press. And they said to me, um, look, Rebecca, um, will you just call off the press campaign? Because it was kind of really... Oh, other other um, building sites in central London approached me and said, this could be a really good paradigm. Because I said, well, we can just move the grow bags and the seeds, lift them off with a forklift truck. They're gone in 24 hours. The whole allotment's gone to another site. Um, anyway, also this corporation of the City of London was interested... But then um, the developers lied to me. They said, if you call off the press um, campaign, because it was national again, um, we will, you know, but we just, it's so embarrassing for us. It's humiliating. Um, can you, can you just not make do it? Make it go away. <laughs> yeah, make it go away and we will sign the lease and give you the one-year lease. And it was all very, you know, there's lots of meetings with lawyers. And very stupidly, I trusted them. And no sooner had I called off the press campaign and everything than two weeks later, I got a call, can you come into the boardroom? And I sat down and they said, look, we're so sorry, but um, we just don't think we can do it. There's a little legal issue or something, I can't remember, but which is something we'd gone through a thousand times before because we'd gone through. And so it didn't happen, so I failed. And I was so sad. Um, but... I still think that it is an idea where you have these sites that are left derelict for a long time that could be given out, that there should be a law that they're given back to the community if they're not developed. Because um, there was that one on Tottenham Court Road where the old cinema used to be, and that was empty for 15 years. Um, the candy one was about eight years. Just sitting there, this rubble where it could have been filled with... Um, even weeds, even if they'd let us sow wildflowers for the bees, you know, if they just put a thin layer of soil, said, okay, while we're waiting, that's 15 years of feeding bees. And um, we had beehives all arranged. It was amazing. Like, you know, it was a really, what, but what it showed me, Jeffrey, was the hunger and desire in the community for um, doing these things. And we are here in Camden in the heart of one of the biggest cities in the world. And what astonishes me is how still a wonderful community it is, a really close community. And, you know, like I feel like I live in a village because it is just, you know, it literally a hundred times a day I say hello to all my neighbours. Um, it's, you know, it's fantastic. And also just the um, allotment project spilled over into um, the, uh, in Carburton Street to the uh, council estate there. Um, this wonderful girl called Denise, she started um, getting um, pots and flowers and she got some money from the local council. Um, she was on the Westminster side. Um, and so that she started planting things and has greened that whole section. So it's a really, and, P, and she's just out there every weekend, giving in her own time, just, you know, pottering around as I do. And it's just really lovely, but people respond to it. And I just think it is extraordinary. It's not a big, cold-hearted city. And I think my magic wand would be to let people be more empowered. And I don't know if you noticed um, when lockdown first started, when COVID struck, I was really heartened by just the kindness of people and their real desire to roll up their sleeves and get stuck in, like really stuck in, not just give money, but to actually make food, make protective masks, um, do all these things. And I just thought this is actually, people really wanted to help. And it was amazing. My friend, Father Alexander, who's the parish priest of Soho, 
um, Square of St. Patrick's. You know, he I would ride past in the morning. He would be out there. He was feeding something like 7,000 people a week um, and he was blessing them and they were all in Soho Square and he was feeding him. And then my neighbour across the road um, who owns the, 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 the offices are the Ivy headquarters and they were making 10,000 meals a week for people. And then hotels gave over their rooms to national health workers. But we didn't hear that on the news. We didn't hear... Um, it's just so great that people are coming together for themselves as a community. It was all, oh, the government didn't do this, or the government didn't do that. And I felt there was a real dissonance. People wanted to actually do it themselves, not to just sit there passively and grumble about what the government did or didn't do, which is kind of what I was doing initially with Camden when I was grumbling that they weren't putting trees around in the streets, um, which has now become a much more accepted idea. But when I first did it, it was just like, no. Well, you seem to have made a huge difference to the borough of Camden in <laughs> well, so many ways. it's not over yet, Jeffrey. <laughs> not over yet. Well, watch this space. Thanks so much for joining us here today, Rebecca. Thank you. Thank you. And that's all this week for Camdeners. Camdeners was recorded in Serendipity Studios in Arlington Road for the Camden Clean Air Initiative.